All right. Common misconceptions about Christianity. Um, people believe different things about Christianity that may or may not necessarily be true. And part of what we're going to do this evening is look at some of those, but what I'm wanting you to do is uh, being able to defend your faith. I've got there on the outline sheet, the very first thing is First uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. It's a great verse to memorize and helping you guys and helping uh, myself, of course, with our memory work um, is, is important. But I've left out some key words, and so let's uh, see if we can fill these in together. First Peter 3 verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a answer, all right? Uh, what's the Greek word for answer? We've used it a number of times in this, uh, in this class. It sounds like saying, I'm sorry. We call that an apology. A Greek word is apologia. It means to make a defense, okay? Uh, it means to give an answer for, uh, to blank who asks you. Everyone, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason, Greek word logos, the word, okay, who asks you the word for the blank that's within you, reason for the hope that's within you with meekness and fear. There's a hope that you have and there's a hope that I have that nobody can take away. No matter what it is that we uh, go through in this life, no matter how hard times get, Christ has given us that hope, and it's something that we ought to be able to, even in the hard times, stand up for and say, I'm not giving this up. My Lord is not going to deny me, therefore I'm not going to deny my Lord. When you have that kind of confidence, confidence in life and living a life, no matter how bad it gets, to the glory of God the Father, or maybe even if it is that we are called to die for the faith, and realize that our lives may be sacrificed based upon our testimony for Jesus Christ, giving a defense is saying, I'm not going to give this hope up, but instead you can have this hope too. In the early Roman Empire, it was that the uh, Christians began to be persecuted and began to be tortured and began to be uh, uh, killed in the most awful ways, the most humiliating ways. But the Romans, as they observed the Christians, they saw that there was something in those Christians that they didn't have, and that was a confidence in death. And so as it was that those Christians were being persecuted and put to death, those Romans began to look at that and see the way that they were dying, dying with confidence and saying, I want that. And so instead of stamping out Christianity as the Roman Empire wanted to do, it began to spread like wildfire. And that's the nature of the kingdom that uh, God created. That's the nature of the gospel message is that um, even in the hard times, even the difficult times, even the times when you're down in the valleys, we have this hope and we should always be ready, 1 Peter 3 verse 15, to give an answer, an apologia, a reasoned argument about why it is that we have this hope within us with meekness and fear. Don't forget that part. Because I can give an answer, and I can give a harsh answer. I can give a prideful answer. I can give a boastful answer. And I can turn people off to the gospel message very, very quickly. First Peter, or excuse me, Ephesians 4, verse 15 says, We preach the truth in love. There always needs to be that tempering of the attitude and that meekness, that bringing that power under control. I may be able to destroy somebody with my words, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to regard them as a soul that matters in the eyes of God, and I'm going to treat them with respect and try and win that soul to the Savior who has won me. All right. 
So here's the common misconceptions tonight, arguments you might consider with regard to uh, misconceptions that people have. I'm going to give you just a moment as we go through these to, number one, write them down, but also I kind of want to hear from you as to how you would answer uh, these arguments as they're brought up. There's four of them we'll look at this evening. You ready? And PowerPoint thing on. Go. Number one, Christianity must be proven scientifically. Christianity must be proven scientifically. Somebody may well say, and it has been said in the past, I'll accept Christianity when it is that you can prove it by, uh, via the scientific method. If you can make sure that Christianity is scientifically verifiable, I will believe it and I will accept it. What thinkest thou? Verily, forsooth. I'll accept Christianity when you prove it by the scientific method. Okay. Stan says... Uh, Christianity is not based on, um, well, you can't put it in a test tube, as it were, okay? But where science and Christianity overlap, they're always in harmony with one another. That's a good answer, and that's a, that's a reasonable answer, and we're going to go there uh, here in just a moment. Um, what is the scientific method designed to do? I'm calling your minds back to uh, your science days, science uh, high school um, probably freshman or sophomore, you learn the scientific method about um, um, how the process works. What's the scientific method uh, designed to do? Well, it's designed fundamentally to use to explore the world around us. It's designed to figure out how things work in the world. Okay? Everything that we have and everything that we've been given, we can test things in a test tube. We can test material uh, possessions. We can test principles and, and, and different uh, types of, of materials and, and uh, putting them in variables like uh, heat or cold or, or pressure, all those different things. And I can use those things to try and figure out how everything works, about how the elements work. And what it does is it takes a controlled environment where it takes an experiment. I think that if I let go of this remote right now, here in Rosenberg, Texas, in this room where it's probably 72, 71 degrees, and I'm going to let this go from a height of, say, about uh, five feet, I think that this is going to go straight down. I'm going to test gravity. There's a hypothesis. There's an idea of what I believe is going to happen. And as I write all of these things down and as I test all these different things, what's going to happen is I can send the same information to somebody who's maybe in Zern, Switzerland. And I can say, under these conditions, I let go of this, and it fell straight down. And somebody in Switzerland can go ahead and say, let me test this in the exact same uh, environment that they did back in Rosenberg, Texas. So you have an experiment to try and figure out how the world works, and it is something that's repeatable. Is that Christianity? What about the miracles of Jesus? See, a lot of times science has problems with the miracles of Jesus, that they didn't happen, and they're not repeatable. In fact, it's kind of funny, but whenever you start reading funny, 
not funny haha, but funny kind of sad, whenever you start reading people that are trying to explain scientifically how Moses parted the waters of the Red Sea. And in fact, they talk about the right conditions where it is that the wind may be able to blow and blow all night and, and where it might be that they can cross on muddy ground. That's not what the Bible said there in Exodus 14. It said they crossed on dry ground. Well, when somebody tries to explain a miracle or they say, well, let's try this miracle in the test tube. Again, what you're looking at is an act of God that's outside of the regular course of nature. So therefore, you have miracles that are outside of the scientific method. They're one-time events, or maybe as often as God repeats it, uh, that's, that's the acting force there in, uh, in antithesis to the laws of nature. What you're looking for with a scientific method is usually consistency in nature. As somebody begins to uh, uh, think about their hypothesis, and they test it, they say, aha, I see that this is the case. And then they begin to uh, to further think about how it's how it's related. Then that scientific uh, hypothesis, that idea, becomes a theory. And later on, if it's something that's proven again and again and again and again to be true, regardless of circumstances or situation, it becomes a scientific law. That is, this is something that we can count on. We call it the law of gravity. Gravity is going to pull all objects. The same direction, with the same force. And as gravity pulls things, again, you can count on it. Do you realize that one of the laws that we have on the science books is the law of biogenesis? You know what that means? It means that life comes from life, and that only of its kind. Humans will only ever give birth to humans. You'll never find a situation where a human is going to give birth to a dog or a cat or, anybody or anything else. You're always going to have plant life that's going to uh, reproduce plant life. You're only going to have animal life reproduce animal life. That's a scientific law. Now, if that's a law, take our lesson from last week about atheism and understand exactly what these scientists are doing. They're saying at some point in the past, the law of biogenesis wasn't a law. In fact, two, mil two billion, four billion years ago, uh, things worked differently where non-life created life through, the, through time and pressure and heat or whatever the circumstances are. Again, they've only got ideas because you can't put it in a test tube. And so what they do is they take those ideas and they try and say that the law of biogenesis didn't happen that way sometime in the past. Are these things that you can put, as far as Christianity goes, in a test tube? They're not. Shake your head like that. What would be a better way to talk about Christianity rather than using the scientific method? The best evaluation for Christianity, for the Bible, for um, religion as a whole is what's called the legal historical method. The legal historical method. <clears throat> what you're looking at in this is things like what is said, what is said about what is said, who said this about what's said, are there eyewitnesses, is there a written testimony that these things are true, is there an oral testimony, is there... Are there people that will testify to those things? Is there physical evidence? When Jesus says, a man went, uh, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, can I go to a map and can I look and see that there are real places known as Jerusalem and Jericho? That's real, verifiable history. That's part of the legal historical method. I can't put that in a test tube that there was uh, you know, two grams of Jerusalem and four grams of 
of Jericho and, and try and prove it that way. Well, what I can do is look back and see if the records of history corroborate or verify what it is that I'm looking at in, uh, in the Bible. Does that make sense? Questions about that? It's a lot like going to a crime scene. You find somebody guilty of a crime and you're not looking necessarily first at uh, the test tube solutions. You're looking at the written testimony. You're looking at the oral testimony. You're looking at eyewitnesses. You're looking at uh, physical testimony, fingerprints, bullet holes, all those different things. But Christianity can be proven true using this method. Does the Bible make this claim? Take just a couple of passages here. Uh, flip out of 1 John. 1 John, chapter 1. 1 John, back towards the end of the Bible. You come back from Revelation just a few pages and you get to 1 John. Know what John says here at the very beginning of this first epistle in 1 John. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Who are we talking about? The word of life. It's talking about Jesus. John says this life was manifested. It came here. It was here. And we have seen and we bear witness. What is that? Well, that's the apostles in their oral testimony. But here in our uh, day and time, this is the apostles in their written testimony. He says, they've seen the physical testimony, and we declare to you that eternal life was with the Father, was manifested to us, that we declare that we have seen and heard. We declare to you that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. John, under no uncertain terms, says, here is something that you can believe. We've seen it. We've heard it. We've felt it concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus. And we want you to know that what you've believed into is not something that you need some kind of special knowledge that he's going to talk about later on in the book of John, 1 John, but it's something that you can hold on to. It's something that you can have confidence with and something that you can have assurance with. That's the best evaluation for when we're talking about Christianity is to find out, are there witnesses, are there eyewitnesses to see Jesus here on this earth, or is it just uh, mere speculation? Take one more passage, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. As Paul lays out all of the arguments about the resurrection of Christ and about how it is that uh, Christ has been raised and how we haven't believed in vain, note how the chapter begins there in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which, and which you stand by which you're also saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He was seen by Cephas, by Peter, and then by the Twelve. After that, he was seen. What is that? Visual testimony. Well, by over 500 brethren of once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Paul says, I have seen the resurrected Christ. 
You have my word that this is true. You have the word of the apostles. You have the word of these testimony, the people that have seen Jesus. From the legal historical method, you can evaluate Christianity and you can show that it is true. Science can be used to evaluate Christianity. Back to Stan's point. It can, absolutely. We've got two primary fields that uh, a lot of people work in, and that number one is archaeology. Can we dig down and can we find evidence for the things that the Bible talks about and the ways that the Bible behaves? Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, the uh, divers that go down to the bottom of the Red Sea and find uh, coral uh, formations. You know, they're there that are in the shape of chariot wheels. I wonder how those got there. Um, what do you think? Um, when you find things like textual criticism, evaluating all those little fragments and, of, of papyruses, papyri and uh, different little pieces of manuscripts and looking at them and finding that there's really 99% of all of the Bible is exactly the way that it is that you have it there in your, uh, in, in your lap there. So you have, there's a couple of ways that science uses to uh, evaluate Christianity, but we can't think that we can put it in a test tube. You can't use the scientific method to prove Christianity to be true. Questions or comments before we leave this point? How All right. Number two, I've got to accept, or I can't accept Christianity until you prove that it's 100% true. Christianity, to me, must be proven to be 100% true. How would you answer that argument, that misconception about Christianity? Okay, Stan approaches it from the fact that we have an all-knowing God that has put together his, uh, his uh, through his providence, put together the canon of scripture that we have that we can trust in, okay? Um, there's never been an error that stood up to uh, the criticism of, um, of the critics. It, uh, it's always proved itself true, and 2,000 years later, here we sit with the same uh, word that they used back then. Again, different language, but at the same time, same fundamental truth. Okay, somebody different, uh, different perspective. Ken, how much what? <laughs> All right, how much do you need? Well, I need one hundred percent. Okay. Here's the question that I would ask. Is it really possible to prove anything historical with 100% accuracy? Can you prove with 100% accuracy where you were today at 2 o'clock? Well, 
again, for somebody to have that assurance, they would need to be there at that exact moment and see everything that was happening in your life at 2 o'clock in order to be 100% sure. How do we know that people like Alexander the Great ever lived? There was a uh, writer several years ago that made, uh, made, this, uh, made this observation. He said, do you realize that there's more evidence for Jesus Christ living and walking here on this earth than there is for Alexander the Great? Something to think about. How do we know that Julius Caesar ever crossed the Rubicon? How do we know it? Well, we were taught in history books. Can we know that with 100% accuracy? How do we know that John Wilkes Booth shot uh, uh, Lincoln in the Ford Theater? <laughs> there was a, uh, a Christian apologist, uh, that is Brad Harum, who was doing a seminar several years ago, and uh, he was using an example like this, and he threw out Abraham Lincoln, and there was a kid that raised his hand and said, you can't use him as an example because uh, we, never, we don't really know if he ever existed. <laughs> several years ago. Um, what about people that deny things like the Jewish Holocaust? When you go and stand under a banner that says, work brings freedom, that's what that banner says, and you see the barracks where these people slept, uh, you see the places where they, it was that they were uh, burned, and you see all this horrific thing, do you realize there's people that deny the Holocaust ever happened? They look at things like that and they say, no, 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 that's just a fabrication. Well, can you really ever know anything with 100% certainty? When you go, and maybe some of you have served on a jury, what is it that the jury is given? Are they given evidence to say that there is a need that if you're going to convict this person, you've got to be 100% sure that they did it? Is that what they tell juries? What do they tell them? Beyond a reasonable doubt. Can I have reasonable doubts about Christianity? I can. Can I look at the evidence that's been given? How much do you need, as Ken mentioned? And can I look at all of that evidence and know beyond a reasonable doubt that Christianity is true? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Note this also, that we can be reasonable with the Scriptures. We can be reasonable with the evidence. Even though it is that I never physically saw the Israelites cross through the Red Sea there in Exodus 14 and sing the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, even though I never physically saw that, we can still look and say, I believe because the Bible teaches and because the testimony is that this happened, that there's probably evidence somewhere for it. I can know the reasonable, beyond a reasonable uh, doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, that Christianity is true, but I've got to look at the uh, the evidence. Well, the historical evidence for Christianity is not absolute, but it is sufficient. But people want to automatically characterize anything religious and any religious discussion that you have in a characteristic of um, something that you can't ever know for sure that you're right. It's just an area of uncertainty. We don't know if it happened or not, but that's what the Bible says, and so we just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, well, I choose to believe this. Uh, Doug, you have a comment? Okay.
Right. Right. Um, Doug makes the observation, here's Christianity that we can know beyond a reasonable doubt, as the saying goes in the courtroom. But here's other people that will, the same people that will be willing to swallow probabilities that are so infinitesimally small that, uh, well, Fred Hoyle said they, they will never happen, uh, the, the famous math, uh, mathematician. And as he talks about those things, and as they say, science can perform miracles, time can perform miracles in eons and epochs of time to uh, bring life from non-life, to bring life out of a rock, so to speak. Um, again, there's there's really a, a disconnect there in, in terms of that. Can we, does the Bible make the claim to say that you have the ability and you have what you need to believe beyond a shadow of doubt? All right, give me a passage. Anybody got one? Let me give you one. Take a look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20. What a lot of people believe is the thesis statement for the book of John. Everything that John wrote and everything that he put together here in this book, uh, inspired of the Holy Spirit and jotted down, written down with, uh, with his pen. Look at John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. And truly did Jesus many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So wait a minute, John, you're saying that I can't know this with 100% certainty. And John says, well, I mean, Jesus did so many more things. In fact, he'd say at the very end of the book that uh, if it, we were to write down everything, it wouldn't fill up all the books in the entire world. Um, or it would take all the books in the entire world to fill it up. Look at verse 31. But these things... These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What John is saying is here is an opportunity that you can't prove absolutely, but you can know absolutely that the things that you have believed in are the testimony of credible eyewitnesses. Men who saw, men who heard, men who handled, John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Men who saw these things, and we testify that these things are true, that this testimony that we're giving, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you can have life in his name, and uh, you can have faith in, in what it is that the, the Bible says. Okay, Carrie says, doesn't that help us understand that Christianity is not a blind leap, so to speak? Faith is not without foundation. A lot of people want to treat it like it is, though. Um, I believe that uh, if I step in front of a moving car, God's going to save me. Well, God never said that. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. What God has told me that I need to do by faith that's what I do because I recognize he's promised me some things, Hebrews chapter 11. And if I follow him faithfully, he's going to deliver based upon those promises that he promised me. That's faith. Faith is acting in the direction that God told me to act, and then I'm going to receive the promise. That's biblical faith. A lot of people want to use the other version of faith as blind leap in the darkest, as Carrie mentioned. Good comment. Any others before we leave? Alan.
Right. Right. Sure. And even those people that God revealed himself to, um, we've mentioned already a number of times, the Israelites crossing to the Red Sea. They got to Exodus 19 and God said, you saw what I did, how I bore you on eagle's wings out of Egypt. And uh, we know that those people died in the wilderness. Why did they die in the wilderness? Because of a lack of trust, because of lack of faith, as Alan was saying. That's, a, that's an excellent point to be made. Absolutely. Uh, yes, sir, Steve. Exactly right. Uh, Steve brings up uh, Romans chapter 1, as uh, Doug did a little while ago, and he's uh, used the entire context there from verse 18 on to verse 21. But uh, mankind's without excuse. You're going to look at the physical nature and the order of the way things are and still continue to not believe that there's a creator, that he's made a revelation of himself. You go and you look at the evidence for the Bible, and if you're already looking with that skeptic mindset that I already know this is not true, therefore I'm just going to look to poke holes in it, again, there's no excuse, really, for uh, for that type of mindset, for that type of attitude. And somebody like that can, in the context, receive the wrath, expect to receive the wrath of God and the penalty for the sin that they've uh, chosen over a knowledge of God. Very good. All right, number three, moving rapidly along. All truth is relative. This is a fun one. <laughs> this is the society we're living in. I don't know if you've ever recognized that, but uh, if you believe something, that's just truth for you. may not necessarily be truth for me. How would you answer that? It doesn't matter what the clerk at the store charges you. Um, the bank note that I have on my car, you know, it's relative. I, I, I can choose not to pay that if I want to. Is that true? that true? How would you refute that?
All right, Steve's appealing to science and says that we know that in science there's things that are absolutely true. This was actually the first lesson that we taught at uh, Camp Bandina this past year because uh, the theme for the year was truth. And one of the things I did with my kids was uh, give them a thing like this and say, all right, which one's bigger, the one on the left or the one on the right? And you hear these seventh graders begin to argue amongst themselves. Well, I can measure this one. It seems, or just looking at it, it seems like the one on the right is just a little bit bigger than the one on the left. And, and it looks like this one is bigger than this one. Well, they may be the same size. You hear them going back and forth. What are they trying to do? They're trying to find out if which one's bigger. Well, the truth is that they are exactly the same size. It only looks like one of them is bigger than the other one based upon the curvature and the, the trick that your eye plays on you. Here's the thing. We know that truth is not relative. The fact that there is truth, and even in the statement, all truth is relative, well, that can't be true because if all truth is relative, then even the statement, all truth is relative, is relative. That means that it can't be proven true. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not truth. There's the truth that something can be believed and then shown to be false all along. I used to believe that those water towers that you see driving by, that those used to contain the entirety of the water source for that community. I've since learned different. <laughs> Just because I believed it didn't make it true, did it? Meanwhile, something can be absolutely true while somebody believes it to be false. Something can be absolutely true while somebody believes it to be false. You ever know of anybody that operates under a false system of beliefs? You're around them every single day. And you're with them every single day. Truth is not dependent on what you or I think about it. Truth just goes on being truth no matter what my opinion about it is. I can absolutely hate truth. I can raise a vitriol and a spew all kinds of anger and horrible, horrible things about the truth. And I can try and poke holes in it. I can try and discredit it. But you know what? Truth doesn't really care what I think. Truth is just going to go right on simply being truth. Oh, somebody that's on a construction crew one time drank some wood alcohol out of a milk jug container thinking that it was milk. It killed him. Did he honestly believe? Did he sincerely believe? The answer is yes. Was he sincerely wrong? The answer is yes. Colorblind. <laughs> I'm colorblind too. It's different. It's no different in the spiritual realm. Jesus said in John 8, verses 31 and 32, If you abide in my words, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What is truth, Jesus? That's what Pilate asked there the, towards the end of the book, John chapter 19. Jesus said in his high priestly prayers it's sometime called in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. The sum of thy commandments is truth. We know that there is a truth revealed in God's word, and that truth is just going to go right on being truth regardless of what you or I think about it regardless of how it is that I respond to it or I don't respond to it, even to my own destruction. That's the truth of the gospel, folks, is that here is this word, the words that Jesus spoken. The same is going to judge him in the last day. 
Jesus said, the words that I've spoken, they are spirit, they are life. But if somebody chooses not to heed the word of God, well, the word of God is still going to go on being the word of God. If somebody's going to try and go and malign it and trying to poke holes in it, it's still going to go on being truth and everybody is still accountable to it because that's what the word of God says. But truth is absolute. There is truth that is absolute, and what we're talking about here in this is a truth that's revealed from God that's for our good here in this life, but also in preparation for the next. It's changeless. All right. Edie brings up the fact that truth never changes. Um, the grass withers, the flower word of our God stands forever from Isaiah and from 1 Peter. Truth is not relative. And so we can demonstrate this, again, as uh, we mentioned just a moment ago, John 8, verse 31, verse 32. We can demonstrate this in the physical realm. We can absolutely demonstrate it in also the physical realm. I'd uh, encourage you to read in your own time the uh, story of the prophet of God who went to cry out against the, uh, the altar that Jeroboam had made. And 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 to 18, he was uh, heading on home, and uh, God had told him, don't stop for uh, dinner anywhere, don't stop with anybody else. And there was an older prophet that was lying, and he said, no, 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 I had a revelation from God that said, you can stop here for the night. So the guy stopped, and the word of the Lord came to this man and said, you're not going to go down to your father's grave in peace. And sure enough, a lion met him on the way and killed him. And you say, wow, that's harsh. He disobeyed the truth that he knew and tried to listen to a truth that was not a truth at all. And there's a lot of people and there's lots of uh, ones that would try and take advantage, a lot of ones that would want to deceive people. And we've got to realize that there is a truth of God that we need to adhere to. Last one. Sincerity is the only thing that matters. Sincerity is the only thing that matters. You all practice your religion your way. I'll practice my religion my way. And just as long as you're sincere about it, it really doesn't matter what it is that um, you believe or what it is that I believe. Um, just the most important thing is that you believe. A couple things about this. Number one, sincerity is absolutely important. But where you put your faith is also absolutely important. Note this. Number one, just like the other point, we can be sincere about what we believe, and yet we can be sincerely wrong. The Apostle Paul was absolutely sincere when he was dragging Christians off to jail and off to their death. He was absolutely sincere whenever he stood there and watched, uh, watched these men, bloodthirsty mobs, stone Stephen to death. He was absolutely sincere that what he did was right. In fact, he told those Jews in Acts 23 that I've lived in all good conscience till this day. I did what I thought was I was doing right. And yet he was sincerely wrong. The object and focus of our belief is absolutely important. If the apostles say and make a statement like Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, that there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved, that's something that we need to listen to. That's something we need to respect and say, I want to believe in Jesus because he's the only one that can save me from my sins. But also, as we mentioned just a moment ago, the obedience of our belief is absolutely important. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James 1, verse 22. Faith without works is dead. James chapter 2. 
we've got to understand that sincerity is important, but where we put our faith and our trust is also important. Thank you all for your attention this evening. I hope this has been helpful for you. And we're going to have our devotional here in just one moment. Thank you.